You were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Happy Resurrection Day, Red Hill. Yeah, he's risen. Yes, yes. Uh, we're going to turn to John chapter 20. I'll be reading from the first 18 verses. John chapter 20. We're going to hear a little bit about the story of the resurrection. It really, really happened. Some people were there. We weren't, but we're still excited because the truth just goes on and on. John 20, verses 1 through 18. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, headed for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Scott. It's Easter, so we bring out the big guns. You know what I'm saying? That's the, he missed an opportunity to make a million dollars being a voiceover commercial guy, like just millions and millions of dollars. Uh, it's uh, so good to be with all of you this morning and want to say a very special happy Easter to my son, Caleb, who is FaceTiming in with us this morning. So Caleb's watching live. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's great news. Uh, I... I loved our worship that first set. That was so good, Bailey and everybody who was up here. There were nine of them up here, two of them, you know, still in development. 
I mean, I guess we're all still in development, but you know what I'm saying. Two of them, two of them shrouded, two of them still uh, yet to make their full appearance. Um, Brooke began this worship set with her mic not on a stand. Those of you who have been around a long time know that at one time, Brooke was a very timid worship leader, like, like a little church mouse worship leader, just a beautiful voice, and she just like, you know, just would just do her little singing part and then get off the stage, and then uh, we, just, we just unleashed this gospel worship beast inside of her, and my daughter summed it up best one time when she said, you know it's about to get serious when Miss Brooke takes her mic off the mic stand. Like, it's about to go down. There was a throwdown right there. I loved it. I loved it. Um, we are, uh, we're talking in this Easter series about how Jesus has the victory. And today, Jesus gives us the receipts. The empty cross and the empty tomb, those are the receipts. He kept the receipts, y'all. He's got the receipts. He can show the receipts to anybody who needs to see them. Paul wrote about it to the church in Corinth and said, like 500 of you guys saw him after the resurrection. And those of you who didn't see him after the resurrection, just go find any of those people and ask them if he is resurrected. And they'll be like, yeah, I actually saw him resurrected. This is the foundational claim of Christianity. This is what makes it absurd. This is what makes it crazy. This is what requires faith to believe is that we actually believe there was a guy who never did anything wrong, who then died an unjust and cruel death on the cross. He actually died. And then he wasn't dead anymore. Jesus is as much alive as you are right now. When he came out of the tomb, he was just as alive as you are, breathing living Jesus, that's who we worship. To be a Christian is certainly more, but is nothing less than saying, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, making the payment for my sins, that he was buried, and on the third day, that he resurrected from death, that he actually died, and that he actually is alive. If you believe something less than that, then you are something other than a Christian. If you believe that, then you are a Christian. That's what it takes to be a follower of Jesus, is faith in what Jesus has done for us. In John chapter 19, just before this story takes place, I want to read very briefly verses 28 through 30 for you, just so you can see that it really did happen. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour, uh, sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That was it. That was the moment that he finished the work of redemption. He finished the work of salvation, providing for you and for me the forgiveness of our sins. And if that was all that there was, it would still be incredible. But it's not all that there was, and it's not all that there is. For those of us who believe, we understand. Good Friday, bad news for Jesus, good news for sinners. But Easter Sunday means that there's more than just what you experience on a Tuesday. There's more than just this life. There's always a reason to choose to hope. There's always a very good reason to have hope because Jesus Christ is alive. 
He's alive. And if that can happen, anything can happen. All right, so into the empty tomb we go with Mary Magdalene. I really like John's accounting of this moment. It's uh, very detailed, and we're gonna walk through it together. It says on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. Sunday's the first day of the week. It reset, by the way, with the resurrection. It reset Sunday on the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. By the way, the other disciple in the Gospel of John is always John. He refers to himself as the other disciple or the beloved disciple or later on the speedy disciple, I guess, maybe. So she goes to them, to the disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Mary Magdalene, who is she? First of all, Mary Magdalene is not a prostitute. There are all kinds of traditions that hold that she was a prostitute, but she wasn't a prostitute, nor was she Lazarus and Martha's sister. Those are different Marys. This Mary, you can find her if you wanna flip over to the Gospel of Luke in chapter eight, in verses one through three, you can find a little bit about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, by the way, means Mary of Magdala. It's like, it's not really a last name so much as an identifying marker because she was from a particular place. It says in uh, chapter eight, starting in verse one, afterward, he, that's Jesus, was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. So, she was formerly demon-possessed by seven demons, which could mean there were actually seven demons. It could also mean, based on the language, that it was something, it was a demon who kept coming back to her, like she would get some relief and then the demon would come back. Or it could be an expression that's meant to say her life was totally overtaken by demonic possession. All three of those seem like really bad situations. I'll let you feel free to pick which one you think it was. It doesn't really matter. It means her life was being destroyed, not because of her choices, but because of a demonic possession. And Jesus came and met her in that moment, freed her from that possession. And from that moment forward, she not only followed Jesus, but she and some other women funded his ministry. You'll remember Jesus said to one guy who said, I'd like to follow you. He said, the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't have a bed. I don't have a house. I don't even have a pillow. He had nothing. The last three and a half years of his life, he was just an itinerant preacher going town to town. Well, how did they eat? They still have to eat. How do they eat? And, and listen, you can only do the multiplying of loaves and fishes so many times before it starts to lose its effect. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you see a trick and then somebody does it again and again and again and again and again. You're like, I've already seen that, you know? Also, we wanna provide opportunities and space for people to participate in the mission, for people to be a part of it. The truth is Jesus didn't need anybody and he still doesn't need anybody. But the truth is also that Jesus wants everybody. He wants you and he wants me and he wanted them and it's not insignificant that we see Jesus always surrounded by women and men. They were all included, they're all following him, they're all part of that group of disciples that are walking with him. Also, it's significant that Mary is named among his followers. She's not just a woman. She's not just a person. It means that she held a place of prominence. 
She was a prominent follower of Jesus. He's recognizing her, he's giving her honor, he's giving her place. She was the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. There are other women also at the cross and there are other women with her at the tomb because when she goes to Peter and John, she's like, we don't know where they've taken him. Not just I don't know where they've taken him, we don't know where they've taken him. But she's clearly a leader. She's clearly a leader. So she runs to Peter and John, presumably to Peter's house because Peter's married, so he probably has a house. And John, who was a younger guy, probably didn't have a house. And so John, you know, he's couching it, I guess. He's just hanging out at Peter's house because what are you gonna do? Jesus has just been crucified. Peter's denied him three times and run off in shame. John's there at the cross, and as Jesus is dying, he gets the commission to take care of Mary, Jesus' mother. And, and, and now Jesus is just gone. He's dead. And, and what do we do now? If you've ever had a loved one die, you have that moment where you go, what do we do now? When my grandmother Hollis, she was the matriarch of our family, she passed away one Christmas, the, the day before her and my granddad's 50th wedding anniversary, she passed away. And, and we always, like the tradition in my house was we get up, we get all of our presents, we open them, everything that my parents got us, what Santa bring, everything is opened. But before you get to play with anything, you gotta then go take a shower and get dressed up really nice because we're going to grandmother and granddad's house and grandmother is making a big breakfast. And so you go and you have this big breakfast and then you open your best present at grandmother Hollis's house, grandmother and granddad. My grandmother's the one who took me to see, um, it was Sesame Street on ice and, and Big Bird picked me up and skated me around the rink. I was that kid. I'm that guy. That's just the truth of it. I'm that guy, right? Um, she was incredible. She, she, she loved her grandkids. She was an incredible volunteer, participated in a lot of civic clubs, an amazing woman, an amazing mother, an amazing grandmother. My granddad fought in World War II. She raised her children um, primarily by herself all the way through primary school. And, and she passed away. And I remember that Christmas morning, we woke up and we didn't know what to do. Because what do you do? Your whole life is centered around a person. What do you do? They're gone. They're just gone. That's what the disciples felt. That's what the women, what do we do? We don't, we don't know what to do. That Christmas morning, we broke into the golf course, the local public links golf course. I say we broke in because it was closed, but we just went and played golf anyway. I guess my dad was figuring if somebody said, what are you guys doing? He would say, we're playing golf. You know, I don't really know what the plan was. Um, I just knew we didn't know what to do. So we just went and did that. When you don't know what to do, you just do something. Because what else are you going to do? And that seems to be what all the disciples did. So Mary comes. Mary Magdalene comes. And she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. <sighs> you know, you can only share what you know. That's all you can share. You can't share what you don't know. If you let what you don't know prevent you from sharing anything, then you're never gonna tell anybody anything. Mary Magdalene didn't know the whole story yet. She just shared what she knew. They've taken him. They've taken him. And we don't know where they put him. This is the only logical explanation. They have taken him. We don't know where they've put him because there are now no Roman guards. The seal is broken and there's no body in the tomb. The assumption, I think, from Mary is probably the assumption I would have made too. How about one final act of humiliation and degradation? 
How about one more time we just stick it to those people that loved Jesus and believed in him. We take his body and that way they don't even have a place where they can go to grieve. They have nowhere to go with their grief. It's not uncommon to do what I did on my sabbatical this uh, last year. I went and drove to Lone Grove, Oklahoma. If you've never heard of Lone Grove, Oklahoma, then you weren't listening to that last sentence that I just said, because I literally said Lone Grove, Oklahoma. If you've not been to Lone Grove, Oklahoma, I would not be surprised, because you have to go south out of Oklahoma City like you're going to Dallas, and then you have to follow the signs that say edge of nowhere. It's not the middle of nowhere, but it's the edge of it. You gotta go a little further to get to the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. I went there because it's nine hours from here and it's not really on the way to anything that I ever go to ever. And something inside me said, I'd like to just go sit by their graves. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever loved someone like that and missed them and just thought, I'm just gonna go sit by their grave because that's where their body is and I don't really know what else to do with my grief. And so I went and I sat by their graves and I talked to them like an idiot, you know, like they can't hear me. I mean, maybe they can. What do I know about heaven? You know what I'm saying? But I just had to get some stuff out. I think that's what's going on with Mary Magdalene and these women because they know that the tomb is being guarded. They know that the tomb has been sealed. They know that Jesus is dead. They know that they can't get in, but they've got all these anointing things that they want to do to the body. And I guess they're just hopeful that they could just be close to him one more time that they could just be near him. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where they've taken him. We just know he's not there anymore. And it says in verse three, at that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. We don't have to make too much out of this foot race. There's all kinds of things that you can imply or infer. There's all kinds of reasonings that you can make up as to why one guy was faster than the other. Was shame holding Peter back? And was John, just because he loved him, able to run faster? Here's what I think it was. I think John was just faster than Peter. Some people are just faster than other people. And if you run against other people, you're going to lose that race. I saw a video this week of a, a, a parent race. It's like parents of track kids. And one of the parents was a mom who's an Olympian. And she got into the race and it was a 100-yard dash. And I'm telling you what, she smoked them. I mean, it was like 50 yards ahead of everybody else. How did she do that? She's faster than them. I don't really know why this little detail is included, but it is included 
And maybe it's like a little holy joking, which I'm all in favor of. Maybe, maybe John, who's writing his memoirs of Jesus here, he's writing the, the biography of Jesus in his own gospel story. Maybe he was like, I'm just going to make sure eternity knows that I'm faster than you, Peter. I'm just going to pencil this in right here. I'm just going to put it down, and God's word will endure forever, and for all eternity, we'll celebrate all that Jesus did, and I'll remind you, I'm faster than you. Maybe not every day, but on the day that it mattered, I beat you to the tomb. I beat you there. Anyway, maybe not. It's not really all that important. It says in verses five through seven that he saw the linen cloths. Uh, in, in the previous chapter, in verses 39 and 40, we get a little bit of an idea of what these were. It says Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, that's in John 3. This is when the Nicodemus, the Pharisee, sneaks to Jesus at night and is like, what does it mean that you have to be born again? And Jesus is like, bro, you know the whole Bible and you're the teacher of all Israel and you don't even understand this. Like, you don't know what we're talking about. This is the Nicodemus who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. So they, they saw the linen cloths, they're lying there. It says, but he did not go in. So John gets there and he doesn't go in. And we're like, why didn't he go in? Um, it's dark, Jesus has been dead since Friday. Roman guards should be there and aren't there, which means it might be a trap. It's a trap! And it's a tomb. <laughs> if your best friend died, and then a few days later, another friend of yours came and was like, hey, the body's been snatched. You're gonna go to the cemetery, but are you gonna get into the vault? You're gonna feel around in the casket like maybe there's a trap door in the casket? I'm not. I'm not jumping in the hole. And there was nobody who like crucified my friend. You know what I'm saying? So John is just looking in. I'm, I'm guessing, honestly, I'm guessing in this moment, John's like, you know the old story, like being chased by a bear, two guys being chased by a bear? I don't have to be faster than a bear. I just have to be faster than you. I'm assuming that's John's mentality here. It's like, if this is a trap, I'm not backing myself into a corner. I'm gonna look in, I'm gonna check things out. I don't have to be faster than the trap. I just have to be faster than Peter. Peter, speaking of Peter, being Peter, just rushes into the tomb. Verses six and seven. <laughs> Following him, Simon Peter also came. If, if it really was holy joking, I feel like John would have written like much later, you know, <laughs> parenthetical note or something. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by himself. Peter, being Peter, just rushes into the tomb. You know how, you know who, if it's Peter or not? Did he say what everybody else was thinking? Did he do a thing without thinking it all the way through? Did he just go for it? That's Peter. Yep, that's just what he does, and that's just who he is. He just absolutely goes for it. Full speed ahead, all gas, no brakes. The grave clothes are just lying there. Probably like the language that's written here in Greek, it kind of indicates that they're still retaining their form. Almost like the grave clothes have hardened into place. So they're laying there like sort of like a shell, but Jesus is no longer in them. And folded up next to those is the little towel that they would have used to tie his mouth to his, like to keep his mouth from just lolling open, like to keep his lower jaw connected up. 
wrappings on his head folded up. So two things here. First one is this. Jesus didn't need any help. He didn't need any human assistance. You remember when Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the grave? Jesus says to everybody after Lazarus comes out, it's it's the best verse in the King James Bible when his uh, sister says, but Lord, he stinketh. You know, that's my favorite King James Bible verse. He stinketh. He's been dead a long time. He stinketh. And, and Jesus calls Lazarus' name. And when Jesus calls your name, you're not dead anymore. That's just how it goes. He never preached a funeral. He only preaches resurrections. When he says somebody's name, they come to life. And that's what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus come out. So Lazarus just comes out because that's what he was commanded to do. And then Jesus says, loose the man, unbind him, take off his grave clothes. So he has 75 pounds of stuff on him because that was the custom. And Lazarus is not dead anymore, but he needs help breaking free from the dead clothes, from the clothes that he was buried in. Some people have to help him. Jesus doesn't need any such help. The second thing that we can see about this is that Jesus wasn't in a hurry. And how do we know that he was not in a hurry? He did his laundry, right? Teenagers, college students, married people, single people, grandmas, grandpas, little kids, be like Jesus, do your laundry. Jesus, he exits from the grave clothes and he's like, you know, before I go, I got time. I'll just fold this up and set it over here. Just, it's not dirty, it's clean, touched me, so everything's fine. So he folds it up and he puts it away. Do your laundry, be like Jesus, do your laundry. It's also worth saying, by the way, nobody had a more important mission than Jesus did. Nobody had more potential than Jesus did. Nobody had more power than Jesus did. Nobody had more presence than Jesus did. Nobody had more gravitas than Jesus did. Nobody had more access to the Father than Jesus did. Nobody had more significance in their earthly life than Jesus did. And never once did Jesus hurry anywhere. He was tuned in to what his Father wanted from him. He was limited because he was a human. He couldn't be everywhere all at once as a human. He couldn't do everything everyone wanted him to do as a human. He was limited, but he was never in a hurry. When you and I get into a hurry, we stop being like Jesus. That's just bonus content. Doesn't have anything to do with resurrection, but I feel like it's good, so I shared it. It says that then, verses eight through 10, John goes in and he believes. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. John went in, saw, and believed. He uses, by the way, John uses three different Greek words for seeing in this accounting. Three different Greek words. The first one is parakipsis in chapter 20, verse 5 when it says that she saw, or he saw the linen cloths lying there. When he looked in, he saw them. Mary also does this in verse 11. This verb just means to glance at or to look at something. It's looking without focus or understanding. It's basically what every person with ADHD does when you say, hey, look at this. Okay, none of you deal with anybody who has ADHD in your life? Because they look at it, and then later they're like, You're like, hey, remember that thing I showed you? And they're like, no, I don't remember that thing that you showed me. It's like just a casual glance. You look in, you're not really taking it in. You're not really understanding what you've got going on here. You don't get the full picture of what's happening. You just look. You just, you take a look and then you're like, okay, something's going on, clearly. Everyone's in a workup about it. I don't know what it is. The second one is in verse six, when it says Simon Peter also came, he entered the tomb and saw it's the ori. Mary also uses this same, it's used of her, I should say, in verses 12 and 14. And this verb means to gaze 
for the purpose of analyzing. And we get our word theater, the infinitive form of this word in Greek is where we get the word theater, where people would go looking for meaning in something that was happening. They're looking to understand what's taking place in front of them. So John looks in and sort of sees it and sort of doesn't. Peter looks in and is like, what is going on here? What's happening here? I don't, I'm, imagine a professor or a teacher or a boss that has this new concept they wanna show you and the first time they show it to you, you see it and you wanna understand it but you don't really understand it. So you're like, I, I'm, I'm being a good observer, I just don't really know what you're talking about right now. I, I, I can't fully apprehend or appreciate what's happening but I, I want to, like I'm, I'm, I'm gazing, I'm looking pretty intently, I just don't really know for sure. The third one's right here in verse eight, when it says that John went in, saw, and believed. It's the word Iden. It's used to describe Jesus seeing people several times. Jesus saw the blind man, and what it means is to discern clearly. Uh, the Hebrew mind would have understand this, understood this word in this way. It, it means to see with the mind and to perceive with the heart. It's to understand what's going on. It's not a casual look. It's not looking and trying to figure out. It's seeing something. It's seeing someone. It's like when you've gone through a hard thing or a great thing and then you see someone else going through it and you go, I know what's going on right here. I understand what's happening. Well, John seems to have understood that Jesus had resurrected, but neither he nor Peter understood that Jesus had to resurrect. They can see that he had resurrected but they did not yet know, verse nine says, that he had to resurrect. This was the plan all along. This is what victory would look like for Jesus. Obedience, even to the point of death and death on a cross and God raising him up to life. Evidence can convince the mind, but only God can change the life. Evidence can make you go, yeah, I believe it. But we have all kinds of belief that don't get down to our heart and therefore don't manifest themselves in our everyday lives. And we must be careful to not let the resurrection become one of those things that we say intellectually, I believe it, and yet live as unchanged people. This is what happens to Peter and to John Jesus is resurrected from death. Jesus is not dead anymore. The grave closer here, John sees it and he believes it. He understands it. They didn't understand that Jesus had to resurrect. So what do they do? I guess I'll go home. Just, just, I mean, what would you do? You go to the grave of a loved one. They're not there anymore, but the suit that you buried them in is still there. I don't know any grave robbers who are like, you know what we should do? We should dig up a dead body, take off its clothes, including the 75 pound version of that, and then take the body. That's super creepy and weird. I don't, the, the, the population and human history that would find that interesting has to be nil 
I mean, it's, it's got to be minuscule people that would think that sounds like a great idea. He had to rise from the dead. Six quick reasons why Jesus had to rise from the dead. Number one, he had to fulfill scripture. The Old Testament talked about it. He had to do it. Number two, to keep his promises. He said multiple times, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be crucified, and on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. He had to keep his promises. He had to provide hope. If all Jesus can do is forgive you for your sins, then you'll be forgiven of your sins, you'll die, and that's the end of everything. There's no making of all things right, and there's no making of all things new. There's just this life, and the difficulty and misery and joy and pain that it brings with it. Number four, to prove his claims, his claims about being the son of God, not just being a person, but being divine. Number five, to demonstrate his power. He has power over death. Let it settle in on you. I follow this account on Twitter. It's called Daily Death Reminder. And every day it tweets one thing, you will die someday. And maybe you're like, dude, that's really morbid. It's not morbid, it's honest. You're going to die someday, and so am I. I will not be here forever. I won't be around to see my kids become great-grandparents if they live that long. I mean, maybe I will, what do I know? God's in control of all that. All I know is it's appointed for me to die once. And after that comes the judgment. He needed to give me hope because I'm not any different than you are. One of my neighbors came to me the other day and was like, I need you to pray for a friend of mine who has cancer. And I was like, okay, I can do that. It's one of my neighbors on my street. And I said, let's, let's pray for him right now. So I prayed for him right now. And, and she was like, pray for, right, pray for him right then. And she was like, I knew I had to come talk to you because you got like the special box. And I was like, I don't know what we're talking about. She's like, you know, like you have like the special access to the man upstairs. And I was like, I really, really don't. She's like, yeah, but like, like you're a pastor. Like you got like, I don't know if she's imagining like old school Batman, like you pull the case off the red phone, you know, like you can pick it up and just call the Kremlin or something. You know what I mean? Like I have this unique access that others don't. I don't. I really, really, really don't. His power over death, it extends to a sinner like me and a sinner like you. And this life that I have is not the whole story for me. It's not even the end of the story for me. When I die, you can just put an ellipsis at the end of my obituary. Meaning there's still more story to write. There's still more that's coming for me. And the reason that I believe that is because Jesus resurrected from death and promised to take me with him. I've been buried with Christ and I will be raised with him and seated in the heavenlies. That's the promise that he made. And the sixth thing is this, to finalize our justification. To finalize it. If you flip over to Romans chapter four, verse 25, you get to see a pretty great verse. Romans 4, 25 says, he was delivered up, that's Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up as a payment for our sins. Resurrected, justifying us with God, bringing us back to Eden, bringing us back to the place of perfect fellowship. Well, they just go home. Jesus is risen. They don't know what to do. 
There's a big difference between a disciple and an apostle. Did you know that? Big difference between a disciple and an apostle. A disciple is following somebody. The Greek word, apostello, it means sent. Disciple is following somebody. An apostle has been sent by somebody. Right now, they're still just disciples. And when your teacher's gone, it's not any different than in college. Teacher's gone, no class, right? I'm going wherever I'm going, but I don't have to be here. Jesus is gone, we don't know what to do. All we do is follow him. He told us to follow him. So all we do is follow him. Wherever he leads, we go. There's a whole song about it. We just, that's just what we do. He goes somewhere, we go with him there. He went to the cross and we were like, ah, I mean, you know, not yet. Um, Let's just play this one loose for a little bit and see what happens. But now, no Jesus to follow, so we just go home. Verses 11 through 18, we get the really cool part of the story. It says, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, This word for crying is like unashamed, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, crying. This is ugly cry. This is snot running down your nose. I don't care who sees me. This is not refined like, (laughs) I'm gonna miss him so much. This is like, just shout, shout, let it all out. This is you at home watching the saddest movie you've ever seen when nobody's around and you tell your friends, I just needed a good cry. All right, leave me alone about it. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to bawl my head off. That's what she's doing right here. She is getting after it. And as she's crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll take him away. Let's just pause right there. Just look at the deep love that Mary Magdalene has for Jesus. She shows up early and she stays late. She's there at the cross Courageously, she's there at the tomb, hopefully. She's crying her eyes out. All she wants is Jesus. She just wants to be close to Jesus. She's just trying to get there. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he's been taken. I tried to get Peter and John. They showed up and looked around, and then they went home, and I just want Jesus. I don't know what's going on. I just want Jesus to be close to me. I think... I didn't research this. This is just something that I thought, but I I think this might be the only time in the whole Bible when somebody sees angels and doesn't freak out about it. She's in a moment, y'all. She's having a moment. She needs a minute. The angels show up and they're like, woman, why are you crying? She's like, they took him. I don't know where they took him. I, I, I don't know what, I mean, how could I not be crying? She doesn't even ask how they got in there, who they are, what's going on. 
Jesus walks up behind her and is like, why are you crying and who are you looking for? I don't know if Jesus borrowed the gardener's clothes. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hill, but for some reason, she thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the hired help who's just tending the garden. And she makes her intentions clear. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll take him away. Give me Jesus so I can put him back in the tomb. That's what she wants, not in an evil kind of way, in an affectionate, misunderstanding kind of way. Like when Peter says on the Mount of Transfiguration, can I build us some tents? And when I say us, I really just mean you guys. We'll sleep on the rocks because this is amazing. I don't even need a tent. I'll just build you guys tents. Let's stay here forever. He wasn't trying to be evil. He just didn't really understand what was going on. Mary's not trying to be evil. She just doesn't understand what's going on. Give me his body. I'll take his body and I'll put it back in the tomb. Something comforting about physical presence. When my people was dying, he was at my Uncle Ron and Aunt Cindy's house, lying on a hospital bed. This is the toughest man I ever knew. I mean, this is a man's man. This is a guy who welded nails to rebar so he could mix his own paint in a giant bucket that just splattered everywhere. He was brilliant, he was hardworking, he was a little bit crazy, he was probably bipolar, but he loved me fiercely. I think maybe the only person he loved more than me was my wife. He really loved Sarah. The first time he met Sarah, I told Sarah, I was like, listen, I don't know how to tell you this. He's probably gonna kiss you on the lips. <laughs> She's like, what? I'm like, I don't, I don't know for sure what he's gonna do. You know what I mean? Like, something's gonna happen. I don't know what it's gonna be. And he gave her a hug. And when he hugged her, he started pulling the back of her shirt out and looking down the back of her shirt, which when the alternatives are present, isn't the worst thing that could have happened, but it was weird. And I was like, people, what are you doing? And he goes, I was just looking for angel wings. That was it right there, right? That was it. The two of them were thick as thieves. My people, I was lying in that hospice bed and they told my uncle and aunt, he's never gonna get up again. This is it. This is where he's going to die. And just a few days before he did die, he got up out of the bed, walked He's wearing a diaper and an A-frame wife beater undershirt. He always wore those A-frame white rib shirts underneath all of his dress shirts. He's got one sock on. He walked to the kitchen, tried to pour himself a cup of coffee, spilled coffee everywhere, and, and then couldn't do anything else. And my uncle said, I knew, I knew that was like the last little bit of him because I had to pick him up like a baby and carry him back to bed. And I came over and my uncle and I put baby powder all over his body, you know, just trying to make him feel good because he's just laying in this bed and he can't move. And I remember sitting there and thinking, this is the strongest man I've ever known. And then going out into the driveway and having a good old Mary Magdalene cry, which is how I'm gonna talk about that forever. It's just a Mary Magdalene cry. And those are good. They're good for your soul. But I was crying because I was thinking to myself, you know, if I could, I'd keep him in that bed forever just to know he was right there. I'd never, I'd never let him move on to what was next. I'd keep him right there just so I knew he was there for me always. I think that's what Mary Magdalene is feeling. I just want to keep him here. I just want him to be here. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus does something cool. Jesus says to her, Mary. And immediately, 
she turns around and says in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It really, it's this special use of the word rabbi. It's like beloved, honored teacher. It's like her pouring out in a single word everything that she feels about him. And then she does exactly what you and I would have done. She starts grabbing on to him. That's not written in the text. But Jesus says, not don't touch me, but you gotta stop clinging on to me. Like, you, you, you're gonna have to let go of me here. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I've not yet ascended to the Father. He's not saying, don't touch me, shame on you. I'm about to go to heaven and I don't wanna be dirtied up by the likes of you, lady. That's not what he's saying right here. What he's saying right here is like, it's like when your kids are little and you have to go somewhere later and they're like, I don't want you to go, daddy. And you're like, I'm not leaving yet. Like, I'm here with you for a while. I'll play with you. I'll talk to you. You don't have to keep clinging on to me because I'm not leaving it. I am going to be leaving, but I'm not leaving yet. You don't have to keep hanging on to me. He says, but go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Go to my brothers. Jesus had first called them disciples. Then he called them friends, and now he calls them brothers. His death, burial, and resurrection inaugurated this new covenant reality. Remember at his final supper with them, he said, I'm creating a new covenant in my blood, a new way for us to relate to God and for us to relate to one another. The primary identity that you and I share as followers of Jesus is beloved sons and daughters of the same father, meaning that you and I, the primary relationship that we share with one another is a brother and sister, a brother and brother, a sister and sister. The new community that he formed during his ministry became a new family through his death and resurrection. For every follower of Jesus who has ever lived, they've been your brother, they've been your sister. They're part of your family. This is the family that will go on and on and on and on. And he says, go tell them. Go and tell them. So Mary Magdalene becomes the apostle to the apostles. Mary Magdalene becomes the first person sent by the resurrected Jesus. The first person who would share the gospel story. Good morning, Phoebe, happy Easter. That's a pretty dress. Go to my brothers. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Mary Magdalene is the first person to preach or proclaim the good news about the resurrection of Jesus. The first person to preach the gospel was a woman preaching to men. We just have to deal with that because it's right here in the Bible. I'll let you take it for whatever you want to take it for. It doesn't matter to me. It's not that important to me what you think about it. Honestly, unless you want to fight about it, then it's probably important. Not so much the end, but the how. We converse about it, but the truth is there. Jesus says to her, go and proclaim to them. Go and preach to them. Go and tell them. <sighs> There's this like exalted thing 
that we've made about preaching that in some ways is very good and in some ways is very bad. The very good part about it is that we should revere God's word. We should revere it. This is his word to us. It's truth. It lasts forever. It tells us everything that God wants us to know about himself, about life, about the afterlife, about sin, about what's wrong with the world and how it's made right. It tells us all of that. But it's dangerous when we start to say that preaching is a thing that is to be revered. Preaching's important, no doubt. When I went on sabbatical, I sat down with the guys that would be filling in for me, and uh, this might make you think less of me. I'm comfortable with that. Let's lower some expectations on who I am right now, okay? I sat down with the guys. We started sketching out a series, and I told them, I was like, um, you guys, uh, we're gonna start with one fact. They're like, okay. And I said, I'm a better preacher than all of you. Because some of them, it was like their first time preaching or their second time preaching. And they were like, yeah, you're a better preacher than all of us. And I said, okay, what did I preach about three weeks ago? And these, these guys are all spiritual hammers. You know what I'm saying? These are leaders in the church. They're all from the church, elders, staff. These are leaders in the church. And they were all like, uh, I think it was Jesus probably would be my first guess. Second guess the gospel, and then I'll probably say the Bible. Like, they had no idea, and I, and I let them off the hook. I was like, guess what? I don't remember either. <laughs> I don't remember either. Some of you right now are like, what did Raiden preach about three weeks ago? Was it Raiden who preached three weeks ago? We're like, we're like the office when they weren't sure if Stanley had a mustache or not. Did he preach? I don't know. I don't think he did. I think it's a trick question. I don't remember. So, so that's good news because if you preach the best sermon ever, you're not gonna be remembered for that. If you preach the worst sermon ever, a couple of weeks later, everybody's gonna have forgotten that it happened. But you know what? If you show up at somebody's bedside when they're sick, if you show up at the hospital when the baby's born or when the loved one passes away, if you show up at the funeral or the party, people remember that. That makes an impact. So what we do is important preaching of the gospel is important on a Sunday morning, but Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is what matters. So she goes and she says, I've seen the Lord and here's what happened to me. And John doesn't say anything about whether or not anybody believed her. He's not like, and the disciples were like, awesome, we believe you. John doesn't say, and I was right there by her side being like, guys, I saw it and I believe. There's no assistance that's mentioned. There's no affirmation that's mentioned. There's no rejection that's mentioned. We know at least Thomas had his doubts. You know what I'm saying? That's a pretty famous Christian meme before there was even memes. We knew doubting Thomas, that's a thing, right? That's a thing. But John doesn't say anything about whether or not she's believed. And here's why I think that's true. Here's why I think that happened. is because Jesus is far more concerned with our faithfulness than he is with our effectiveness. Jesus is more concerned about your faithfulness than he is your effectiveness. What you and I do is we focus on the effectiveness. That's what we do. We focus on, we go, I can't tell anybody about Jesus because I don't know every fact in history. I don't know everything about the Bible. 
I can't answer complex questions about ethics or about creation. I'm, I don't have any Bible verses memorized at all. I think maybe there's one that says he stinketh. I heard Raiden say that and it stuck with me, but I don't know where it is. I'm assuming it's an Old Testament thing. It's the only thing I can find. I don't really know what's going on there. I'm not good at talking to people. Some of us say I uh, get anxious in front of a crowd, and some of us say I get anxious having a small conversation with a small number of people. Some of us say I'm ashamed of my past and I don't want to tell my story. And some of us say I'm ashamed of my story because I don't have this colorful past. And I'm going to say this, and they're going to respond with this. And I'm going to say this, and they're not going to believe. And then I'm going to be left looking like an idiot, having told this story, and nobody believed it. Jesus just wants you to be faithful. Uh, Nathan and I went and saw a church planter friend of mine named Dale Huntington, and he and I were talking about like evangelism strategies and how, how difficult it is for us to go out and share our faith, which means, of course, that our churches are never going to go out and share our faith because speed of the leader, speed of the team. I mean, Jesus is really the leader, so if you're looking to me to be the inspiration and the meaning in your life, you're going to be really disappointed, like really disappointed. But you look to Jesus, you get a different pace altogether. But I was talking to Dale about this, about our fear of rejection. And now listen, the fear of rejection where we live is like, I don't want to talk to you about this. Slammed door and maybe some curse words. Dale is serving in Mount Hope, which is southeast of San Diego. And when Nathan and I were there, what we discovered is that it's Crip territory. Like actual wear blue Crips, like real gang members. They go to his church. Somebody from the Mexican mafia goes to his church and a week and a half ago, the Mexican mafia, which she left when she became a follower of Jesus, tried to kidnap her son. Like real risk and danger. And Dale was like, I decided to flip the script because people are afraid of rejection. So I tell my people, and we're just straight up stealing it. I mean, I gave credit once, I'll do it Two more times. After that, this is my idea. That's how it works. But Dale said, this is number two, what he tells his church is, don't come to church without having been rejected twice. See if you can get rejected two times this week, inviting someone to come to church. Just try to get rejected. When you go out and you try to get rejected, what's the worst that can happen? You get rejected. I won anyway. That's what I wanted to have happen. I had a friend at youth camp once. He saw this girl. He's like, that's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And I was like, cool. He's like, I'm gonna shoot my shot. And I was like, bro. He walks across the room and he goes, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And now they're married. Not really, no. <laughs> Not much happened, but he shot. He took a shot. You know what I'm saying? He took his shot. He's like, I'm only gonna be at camp for five days. I gotta lock down somebody. Because we all know that's what Christian youth camp is all about. <laughs> Find that camp boyfriend, that camp girlfriend, then Thursday night feel real guilty about everything in your life and make a commitment that you're going to share the gospel with every living soul on the planet. And then on Friday, you go home and you get a little motion sick in the car because you stayed up too late. That's just sort of what happens. He says, Dale says this the third time. This is it. After that, it's mine. <laughs> go out and try to get rejected twice. Just go try to get rejected. Try to get two people to tell you no. Then you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Jesus just wants you to be faithful. Salvation requires faith. 
That's a gift of God, not a result of effective presentation. And it's not a result of efficacy of the one who's being presented to. In other words, it's not because I'm good and smart and capable that I became a Christian. That's not what happened. Remember when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, you're really smart, Peter. Everybody else is a dummy, but you're really smart. No, Jesus said, blessed are you. Blessed, happy, favored. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father who is in heaven. In other words, every person who's going to say Jesus Christ is Lord is going to do so because the Spirit of God moves upon them and gives them the gift of faith. This is what Paul said to the church in Ephesus in chapter two, verses eight and nine. You are saved by grace through faith. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You didn't muster up the faith. It's God's gift, not from works, so no one can boast. Nobody gets to brag about being saved. We don't get to brag about being saved. You're not in the ocean drowning, and then they send in the pararescue guys on the helicopter whose motto is that others might live, and they jump off the rope, and they pull you from your last time going down, and you get in the helicopter, and you're like, did you guys see me swimming out there? I'm amazing. No, you go, I was gonna die. And then these people saved me. I was hopeless, I was helpless, there was nothing I could do, someone did something for me. Paul says, you're saved by grace. Can't earn it, through faith. And that's a gift. That's a gift. You got somebody that you wanna have believe in Jesus? Pray for God to give them faith. Because you know what happens when you have faith? You have faith. That's what happens. In the history of every person who believes in Jesus, in the history of every person who has ever believed in Jesus, there was a time when they did not believe in Jesus. And then suddenly, whether it was for the first time or the millionth time, someone said, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And you heard it, and they heard it, and something inside of them said, it's really real, it's really true. I don't know what changed, but suddenly I believe it. Man, I got some people I'm praying for. Some people that I want God to give the gift of faith to, like, I, I, want it, I, I want it more than I want my next breath. And if God would come down and say, I'll make you a deal and you can give your life up right now and I will save them, I will see you guys in heaven. It's over for me. I want them to have faith. I want them to be given the gift of faith. And it's liberating to me. It's liberating because sometimes you want something so bad and you're like, if it is to be, it depends upon me. And in those instances, you go like, I just, I just, I gotta get there. I, I'm, I mean, if I can just push hard enough, like I just want this thing so bad. And if it all depends upon me, the pressure of that, someone else's eternity depends upon me, 
No, Jesus went to the cross and paid in full to telestai, paid in full. I don't add to that equation. I just have to be faithful to say it out loud. Evidence, guys, evidence has to lead to experience. Otherwise, it's just vanity. It's just knowledge for the sake of puffing yourself up. There's a place in Dallas, and listen, I'm gonna move this away right here because it's like when Brooke takes her mic off the stand, it's about to go down. There's a place in Dallas called Slater's 50-50. Some of you have been there. Most of you have not. It's called Slater's 50-50 because they serve this particular burger that is 50% ground beef and 50% ground bacon. And I was told by a fat friend of mine, this is the place to go. And I call him a fat friend of mine because he said, when it comes to food, you've got to trust the fat kids. I'm telling you, go to Slater's 50-50. Trust the fat boy. I was like, okay. And so we did. And we got there. First of all, they have a thing called vampire dip. And I don't know if they put real vampires in it or not, but if they did, vampires are way delicious. And maybe they're eating people to keep people from eating them. It's worth considering. But it was like cheese and garlic and all kinds of deliciousness, and you could dip bread in it, and carrots in it, and celery in it, and then when that ends, you can eat the bowl, and then what's left, you can just pick up the plate and lick it straight off the plate. If you take vampire dip and just smear it across the top of your forehead, your tongue will beat you to death trying to get to it. Just slap, 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 slap. It's that good. It's that good. And when we're ordering, we're like, 50-50, it's the namesake, we gotta get it. And our waitress is like, you might wanna consider the PB and jealousy. I'm intrigued, you guys are good at naming things. Vampire dip and the PB and jealousy. What's the PB and jealousy, we all say? Well, she says, it is a cheeseburger. I'm like, okay, you got me, right? I like cheeseburgers. And on the bun, is a thin layer of peanut butter. Okay. And also a thin layer of strawberry jelly. Okay. And you can get it a la mode. Wait, what? Yeah, we'll bring out a little paper cup that has a dollop of ice cream and you put the ice cream on top of the burger and then you put the bun on top of that with the peanut butter, jelly, Ice cream, bacon, cheese, hamburger, other bun. And I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, the vampire dip made of real vampires. All right, you got me there. Ground beef and ground bacon. You said bacon, I'm in for it. But now you're putting peanut butter, jelly, and ice cream on a cheeseburger. And that is weird. That's weird, y'all. It's weird. So we decide we're going to get the 50-50s, but we're going to get a PB and Jealousy, and we're going to split it up. And there's like, I don't know, six or eight of us there. And so we get the PB and Jealousy, and we split it up, and we're like, okay, uh, we're coming back here. <laughs> so we come, because the first time, a la mode, it was like, listen, I'll go with you 99, but I can't go 100. You know what I'm saying? I just, I can't, I mean, come on, like... Okay, Jesus is gone, but resurrected, eh, let's wait and see, you know? 
Let me put my hand into the side and let me taste the actual burger with peanut butter, jelly, and ice cream on it. So we go back and we're like, we know it's good. And worst case scenario, we'll just order more vampire dip, right? So we're like, let's do this. So we push all in and we just like put the ice cream on, put the peanut butter on, put the jelly on and went to town. And I'm not kidding you. It's the best burger I've ever had in the history of my whole life. It's that Good, it is fantastic. I will occasionally find whatever jelly we have and the creamy peanut butter, I used chunky once, I'm not proud of it, but it happened, and I will put that on my burger. And when I do, I will think about Slater's 50-50, the vampire dip, I'll even eat celery with that stuff. That's how good it is. You guys are like, celery doesn't have any flavor. I'm like, yeah, it does. It tastes like green paper that's been soaked in water. That's what celery tastes like. Unless you put it in vampire dip. You put enough cheese on it, you can eat just about anything. You know what I'm saying? I'll think back about that burger and remember just how good it was. It's unbelievable. I can make you an imitation of it, but there's nothing like the real thing. And now all of you have that testimony about it. Someday, you may find yourself in Dallas. And if you do, and the Lord favors you, you will remember. I remember one Easter... Raiden spent a lot of time, not talking about Jesus, but talking about this particular cheese dip and a hamburger. It was an interesting Easter. Nobody was wearing a coat or a tie in the whole place. You guys understood the assignment. And you will go, A, I think I will go and put my fingers into the holes in his hands and my hand into the hole in his side. I think I will go and try this thing for myself. Or you will say, that was a good story. Or maybe it's a terrible story. Maybe that's what you'll say. But you have to make a decision one way or the other. And that's all presenting the gospel is. You're here this morning. Some of you are family from out of town. Some of you came because it's Easter and that's what you're supposed to do. Some of you maybe just thought the bar was opening early and you sort of got stuck in the middle of a, of a row and you're like, well, I guess I'm here now. I hope the bar's open later. You know, I wasn't planning on singing about Jesus and having somebody open a Bible this morning. I don't know what got you here, but you're here. You're here. And the evidence demands a verdict. My job's not to preach a really clever sermon. My job's not to tell you really good stories. My job's to tell you this. September 1st in 1976, on a Wednesday at 11, 12 p.m., shortly after at 11, 11, the doctor said, make a wish, I was born. That's the story I tell anyway. I was there, but I don't really remember it. I grew up in a home with two parents who loved Jesus, with an older brother who loved Jesus and who loved me, and who taught me how to do pretty much everything that I ever learned how to do. We went to church Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and we went to visitation. I went to Awana and Royal Ambassadors and every kids ministry program that was available during those years. I heard dozens of school, uh, Sunday school teachers present the gospel thousands of times. I heard a number of pastors preach their heart out, open God's word and faithfully tell me the gospel story. When I was six, I walked down the aisle because I found out the church had a pool. And I was like, awesome, I want to get in that. My parents were like, well, you have to be a Christian. And I was like, well, what do you have to, what is, I mean, what's, what's the story there? And they gave me some kind of a measure of it. 
what I remember is that I could tell them that angels were real and so I got to go down to the front. I'm sure, knowing my parents, there was more to it than that. But I went down to the front and the pastor was like, just repeat after me. I was like, awesome, I don't even have to think? Perfect, right? That's great. Say these words and everything's different. So I said the words. I didn't feel any different, but now I knew I had the pool pass. So I got to get into the pool. And it was awesome because a six-year-old, unlike now, I was very, very small. So I was one of the kids swimming across the baptistry that was located behind the choir loft. You guys remember what a choir loft is? Imagine if the bricks were risers where people could sit and sing special songs while you sat and listened. That's a choir loft. And behind that, there'd be an opening in the wall and a lovely mural of Jesus standing over a river with his arms held wide. You could tell it was Jesus because he had blue eyes like most Jewish men of his day. <laughs> and the water was deep. It was like three and a half feet deep. And, uh, and of course, I couldn't stand in it, so I had to swim there. And Pastor John Lucas baptized me. It was awesome. And I was like, Cool. And then a few years after that, I was sitting on the front row of another church, First Southern Baptist Church in Dell City, Oklahoma, and Bailey Smith was preaching the gospel. And I was sitting there on the front row, and I felt my heart start to feel like somebody had their, like somebody had their hand gripped around my heart. And I had seen enough Samford and Son to know what was going on. <laughs> this is the big one, Ethel. I'm coming home. And some of you haven't seen Samford and Son, and it shows. Check out Nick at Night. It's going to change your life just wholesome goodness. This is the big one, Ethel. I'm coming home. I'm going to die. I was like nine years old, and I was like, I don't think a lot of nine-year-olds have a heart attack. This is going to be an amazing story for my family. I hope they're all okay, but I'm about to die. I understand now what I was feeling was conviction. The Holy Spirit was working on me, was saying to me, Raiden, you're a sinner. But Jesus died to pay for your sins. You don't have to live underneath the identity of sinner anymore. Every amount of punishment that could be given has been given to Jesus. All that's left for you is to give yourself to him, to say, I believe what he did. I believe that he lived, that he died, and that he resurrected from death. And so I was sitting there, and there was a big church, like 2,500 people in this church in the, in the mid-80s when there weren't things like that. There were like 13 guys across the front. And I was like, I'm gonna go talk to that guy because they had the just as I am kind of invitations, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're gonna keep singing until somebody gets saved kind of invitations. And I'm sitting on the front row and I'm like, I'm gonna go to that guy and somebody walks up. I'm gonna go to that guy and somebody walks up. I'm gonna go to that guy and somebody walks up. I'm gonna go to that guy and somebody walks up. I'm not kidding, every guy I pointed to. If they had had 75 people up there, there'd have been 75 people saved that morning. But we ran out of people and eventually there's one guy left. His name was Wilson Beardsley. Eventually we actually lived down the street from Wilson Beardsley and he was a wonderful guy. But he was like 6'4", and he had curly hair that was white and went everywhere. I mean, it went everywhere. And I was like, that dude looks like an evil scientist. I've seen enough cartoons to know that's the bad guy. And again, I was very little as a child, unlike now, where I am an imposing physical presence to all who meet me. And I'm like, I'm gonna be at his knees, and he's freaky looking. And here's what happened to me is, for the first time in my life, I believe God was speaking to me and he said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to do hard things. And so I got up, I walked down to the front to Wilson Beardsley and I said, I wanna become a Christian. 
And Wilson said, well, why don't you pray and tell God what you want him to do? And so I did. Later, what would happen to me is, just like most Christians, I would have some seasons where I was growing and some seasons where I was failing. I'd have times where I was close to God and times where I was far from God. God called me to ministry when I was a freshman in college at Southwest Baptist University. My sophomore year, me and two of my buddies decided we were gonna plant a church together 10 years after graduation. One was gonna go to seminary, one was gonna go to business school, one was gonna go straight into ministry. And together, we were gonna form the Wonder Triplets. Like, we were gonna be the superpower Christian team that did it all. One of those guys is named Rusty Gunn, who planted the church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. One of them, of course, is me, who planted a church here in Edwardsville, Illinois. One of them went on staff at a mega church where he embezzled over a million dollars and was found guilty and sent to prison. None of us came together 10 years later to plant a church. For me, it was 20 years later when I would plant a church. In between that moment and the moment of planting a church were seasons of my life where I felt close to the Lord and seasons of my life where I could not have felt further away. Seasons where I was a good and faithful follower of Jesus and seasons where I fell deeply into sin. I love you, Phoebe. Happy Easter. Seasons where my marriage was healthy and strong and seasons where I injected sin into it and poisoned it. The one constant since that day in February 1985 was that Jesus never left me and never abandoned me. Since that moment, I've known with everything deeply embedded into my soul, I've known to the last and smallest particle of my DNA that this life is not all that there is. I had heard the gospel probably a million times by the age of nine. But that Sunday morning, as Bailey Smith preached, as they sang some hymn that I don't remember, and as I wrestled with God, God gave me the gift of faith. Psalm 34, eight says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? You've been given all of the evidence. You've been given all the truth. I've shared with you what I saw and what happened to me. And I can tell you that the Lord is good, but evidence must lead to experience. It has to. And like every other thing that you experience in your life, you can't tell somebody what it's like. They just have to experience it. So this morning I'm inviting you to join me, to be a part of my family, to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not gonna walk you through specific words to say, but I am gonna invite you to put your faith in Jesus to take a moment, even beginning right now, to tell him that you believe. And those of you who have believed, to be reminded that you have believed 
Jesus actually is alive. Like he really, it's really real. You know what I'm saying? It's really real. It's real. It's as real as I am. It's as real as you are. And that experience, that faith, should shape everything about our lives. Everything should be formed by that. We're a family. Everybody's invited to the table. Let's take a moment. Let's listen to the Spirit. Those of you who have not tasted, invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And how happy is the person who takes their refuge in Him? Those of you who tasted a long time ago but have forgotten, invite you to taste again to see that the Lord is good. We take the Lord's Supper together pretty much every single week. We're gonna do it again, by the way, tomorrow night at the new building. This morning, as you take it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Jesus says. When you take it, the broken body, the spilled blood, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back. He's coming back. That's going to happen. We make the proclamation, Jesus died for me. That's what we're doing. He made me right with God. He made me acceptable, and someday he is coming back. We've got the receipts. He made the payment. Take it with great joy this morning. Every sin you've committed is covered. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll be available over here by the coffee, if anybody would like to pray or to talk. If you make a decision, if you have a prayer request, I really wanna encourage you to fill out a connection card so that we can follow up with you. Of course, encourage you to give, encourage you to pray, encourage you to feel the freedom to move around the room. If you'd like to talk with somebody or pray with somebody else, please do so. Listen carefully to the Spirit. Do what He commands. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's word together.